the archetype of the hero was the same a thousand years ago, it will be the same in a thousand years. The archetype of the dragon was the same a thousand years, you know, it's going to be the same. So those things, to me, they're not stereotypes, they're not tropes, they're really great things to build stories around. And yes, you can have new angles to it, but I think you go too far away from that, it doesn't work. Hi, it's Gary Snow from the DiQ Podcast, and with me is Andrew Kaywood. And Andrew has been making some really great products, which I have here with me, and we'll talk a little bit more about those. But uh, Andrew, welcome to the DiQ Podcast. Thanks, Ann. Nice to uh, nice to be with you. And uh, so you are a fellow Canadian, and uh, I know that uh, when I first saw your products uh, on Drive Through RPG, I was like immediately taken with your monster books and it just kind of had like a nice feel to it uh, especially um, coming from my point of view of like I was off of gaming for quite a while and coming back to it I was like really intrigued by your products and uh, so well done I really think they're amazing thanks and uh, but before we get started on highlighting some of your products tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into gaming in the first place Sure. Well, um, like you said, I'm here in Vancouver now. Um, I actually started out in the city the farthest from Vancouver in the world, <laughs> which is uh, Cape Town in South Africa. Um, so a little bit after I moved here as a kid, I think around 79, some kids from school said, do you want to play this Dungeons and Dragons game? Um, I had no idea, but it sounded it sounded really cool. And um, what we do is we'd play the whole day and uh, we'd have breaks for snacks and breaks. We'd go outside and play football, um, get some actual fresh air and exercise. And, um, and we play, like I'd say, all of Saturday and all of Sunday. And um, immediately I was hooked. And I played, I think I played with them for a few months. I can't remember exactly how long. It was a long time ago. Um, and then after maybe a year or so later that's when i decided i want to run these games and that's when i i bought the basic and expert set and started being a dm cool so that was like the red box era of games and uh and with your group of friends like was there ever because uh, i was always wondering about this from other people of my vintage mm -hmm. was there ever a stigma around it for you growing up as far as uh it being a bit of a nerdy activity oh yeah oh for sure for sure especially like the earlier on the more like when it started you know when when more people started playing around you know 79 80 the beginning of the 80s yeah it was huge it was yeah it was you definitely didn't advertise it <laughs> um which made it which made it even harder to get a group together um however like the most of the people i played with were especially later on, like my group in junior high and high school in, in Alberta um, at the time, uh, most of us actually were athletes. And um, yeah, it was like living two lives in a way. Um, I sort of relate to, you know, Joe Mangiano a little bit like that in terms of, I, yeah, I spent most of my time playing sports. Um, and yeah, it was not something you advertised for sure. I have a similar story because I used to play, uh, I think I've mentioned before on 
my podcast, I've played pretty competitive hockey. Oh, okay. And uh, and so I had my D and D friends, which were right. like really my closest friends. And then I would go play hockey, and right. I was acquaintances with them. But my friends were the Dungeons and Dragons friends. So on a Friday <laughs> night after the game. I everybody else was going out to parties after right. the game and I'd run over to my friend's house and play Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> nice. Nice. And that so that was kind of my high school upbringing and uh, uh is and I'm kind of of the similar uh era of you I think and as far as uh you spoke spoke of D&D in hushed tones like oh, you yeah. didn't advertise it. Oh for sure, for sure. And it was it was so hard to get a group together. Like to, if you lost a player to try to find a new player, even like I lived in Edmonton at the time and you know, it wasn't a tiny city, it wasn't very big, but it was even hard to get like, you know, you, you'd be lucky to find a miniature set or some, some of the um, extra resources like the deities and demigods book or you know, those sort of things or fiend folio. Some of those books were harder to get. And it's amazing what we have access to now. And I guess that's a nice segue into like, how did you maintain gaming throughout all these years or did you ever take any breaks from it? Oh yeah, I, I, I took a huge break. I sport at a certain point, sports and relationships in high school around 15, 16, maybe it just took over and I, I forgot about the game. I, I, and I didn't, I sold all my stuff because I needed the money when I was a student in university. Um, probably sold it like around 87, 88 or something, which I'm sure the local uh, gaming store was very happy to take all that stuff because I had pretty much all of that um, era. Um, I was very fortunate in that way. Um, so I had all the modules, all the adventures. And um, yeah, it was only about six years ago a little over six years ago, I read a book called Of Dice and Men uh, by David mm -hmm. Ewalt about the history of Dungeons and Dragons on my holiday once. And I wondered, why did I ever stop playing this game? And I'd also been playing Skyrim, which made me very nostalgic uh, to going back to D&D. And eventually I realized it'd be much easier to get a group together now with the internet and the first people I contacted after my holiday were looking for a dungeon master. And I, I sat down these, the stranger's house. They were running the game at that time. And it was like nothing had changed, partly because I was, I was a teacher for many, many years. And the way I would teach would be mainly through storytelling and mainly through fantasy, the fantasy genre. So I kind of been prepping or I, I I'd stayed a storyteller all those years. So I actually was a much better dungeon master than I was obviously when I was, you know, 10 to 15, 10 to 16, whatever it was. And when you re-engaged with the hobby, like what mm -hmm. was kind of your first steps as far as like what settings, what core rules that were you using? Right, that's a good question. I mean, part of the reason is because it was the fifth edition playtest. So they had those early basic rules. And then um, I decided, you know, with this group, I didn't know how long it was going to go. I didn't even know if it was going to last more than the one night. I didn't know if I would even get along with these players. 
Um, and I didn't know if I would like the setting. I didn't know, you know. So what, the one good thing I remember is that that original group, one of the people actually wrote a few things for D&D sort of in, in those years that I was away. So they were very, um, they were very involved. They had a massive collection of miniatures, a great setup. So my first initial thing was, my first initial idea was just to build a village, you know, a beginning of a plot, a story that could last one session, which is not really, I don't really like one shots personally, but at that point to me, it was gonna be a one shot. And then with the potential to build out, you know, which is what I always tell people now, you know, they ask how to start a world. I say, well, start with a village and build and keep going. Um, I did that six years ago and now I have nine continents. <laughs> and that is your, that is your setting world of mirror. And how, how did that yeah. come about? What was the naming and uh, the, the nugget of uh, how that formed? Yeah, well, again, it started with this village and eventually I saw that this was, this was going to be a success. This, this uh, potential now was going to be a campaign, not a one shot. And um, so for some reason, Mir came to me and I'm a little bit suspicious because my wife and I had just met each other maybe a year before that. And we were definitely going to get married. That was in the cards and we are now. Um, and her name is very similar <laughs> to that name, Mir. So I think it potentially could have been subconscious, but I do spend a lot of time on my names uh, for everything, for worlds and characters and monsters. I spent hours and hours and hours. Um, and that one, it came really quickly and I knew it was right. And then I started to build from that village. I knew I started, one of the basic things I started with was a family who used to be royalty, who were still really the rightful rulers, but they kind of lost track of where they stood in the, in the pecking order in the kingdom. And they'd been corrupted to a certain degree. And my long-term plot was that they were gonna, they were gonna gain the throne again. So that, that really helped me begin. And I knew I wanted a, I, I, I like traditional fantasy, classic, um, you know, they call it epic or uh, high fantasy. And um, I, my, my big love in AD&D was Greyhawk. So that's the inspiration for World of Mir, 100% is Greyhawk. And, and did you find it, say difficult to find unique angles on well uh trodden roads as far as like Greyhawk and other high fantasy like how did you how did you carve out your niche in that area well I think sometimes part of that is that there's been a confusion I think especially in RPGs with the difference between an archetype and a trope so archetypes never change and people can say that and tropes are just devices that you're going to use in a story. Some people think now that archetypes are tropes. It's not true. It's never going to change. Never. When it was the same thousands of years ago, it's going to be the same thousands of years from now. The archetype of the hero was the same a thousand years ago. It will be the same in a thousand years. The archetype of the dragon was the same a thousand years. You know, it's going to be the same. So those things 
to me, they're not stereotypes, they're not tropes. They're really great things to build stories around. And yes, you can have new angles to it, but I think you go too far away from that, it doesn't work. Um, usually these days stories get, a lot of stories get too dark and the balance is off. Uh, for example, the Sherlock uh, TV series on BBC, great, great show. But the last season, they got too dark and the whole thing broke, fell apart because the show was now just darkness. It wasn't interesting. It wasn't a heroic battle anymore, a heroic adventure. So for me, I keep a lot of those archetypes. I keep a lot of those things um, that are universal. And then I have some new twists. Like I use a lot of, there's a lot of politics in my world of Mir. Um, and one of the main things was that it's a world that had found a nice comfortable balance and now that balance was gone. And so when the players start playing in Mir, it's just shifting and it's shifting politically, it's shifting, the climate is shifting. And now the players have to deal with, and all the factions have to deal with a world where everything is about to shift and change. Well, I mean, it's an exciting setting and especially, I mean, your, your creative monsters that kind of fit within the world. Um, those are amazing. And we'll cover those in a second, but sure. when was the first moment that you said, okay, I'm going to actually write some supplements or adventures. And how did that take place as far as you putting pen to paper and going, I'm going to create this. Right. Well, it really was that my, my world of mirror with my players, they connected so much at that point, especially because one of the players used to write for um, D&D, they all said, including him, you have to publish this. And they encouraged me to go to some small publishers um, who I looked at, some other third-party publishers. But I didn't, I didn't really, I don't really feel an affinity for any of those companies. Um, usually, again, for me, they're too dark. There's a lot of, to me, like if you look at fifth edition, a lot of fifth edition so far has been, I love the system. I love the system, but the content, a lot of it has been making excuses for, for evil creatures. First, it was making excuses for vampires, then beholders, then witches. And it's like, again, they don't understand what an archetype is. So for me, it was those players saying, we really love these stories. You really should try to publish it. And I, I, I thought, yeah, that, that's sort of a good idea. I wasn't really that interested, even though, like, if you look at my life, it made total sense. I mean, I'd, I'd done that as a kid. I'd, you know, my favorite subject in school was English by far. Uh, my first university years were very unsuccessful, but because I was in the wrong area, I started in business. But when I finally got to what I loved, which was literature, um, and later education and counseling. But um, I have all that background. And then as a teacher, being a storyteller for years and years and years, I knew how to, I knew how to do it. So the players encouraged me. And it just, again, the timing, it happened that the new license for third parties just was just coming out. And so I decided to try to kickstart Mir first. I soon realized that you can't kickstart something with no online footprint. <laughs> 
and very little history of, of doing anything as far as publishing and writing. So it didn't work. So I decided to do it myself to fund the art and to do the best layout that I could do. And I put it up on, I published it on drive-thru and that was the, that was the beginning of um, what we're doing now. I never thought it would grow to this. You know, it was very much, you know, moving from homebrew to publishing. And when you uh, think about your digital footprint now compared to what you're, uh, or from back then to what you're doing now, yeah. like, is it obviously like, I mean, I discovered you through online um, social media as well right. and drive through RPG and uh, how, how long did it take you to build up that kind of an audience? And was it like in leaps with new products or was it incremental? For the most part, it was stages. Um, it was leaps. It, um, it took a long time. I, I'm really glad that I focused on Instagram at a certain point. Um, Twitter, Twitter was really the beginning for us using Twitter. Um, and then Facebook has slowly grown, although people aren't as active on it. But the real driver in a lot of ways has been Instagram. I think partially because of our, because of the artists that we use. Uh, and also we post our games and all, and so people can see, you know, we, we really enjoy this game, me, my, myself and my players. And we test everything out that we write about. And we play in every adventure and world that we're writing about and use every monster. So it's a, it's more a lifestyle. Like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I can usually play once a week or so, and I can spend most of my days creating. Um, and are you now a full-time designer? Is that your full occupation? Yeah. Yeah. Only full-time since September because my daughter's in school now. So before that I was looking after her and writing on the side. So all those the first four, yeah, the first four of our monster series books were all published part-time, which was challenging, especially last year because I had no office or for the last two years, I had no office. I had to do it basically at the kitchen table. Um, we moved uh, in the summer. So now I actually have a proper space here. And when you talk about uh, like the leap to the monsters and uh, like that creativity, but you first started out with like some supplements like Dungeon Master handbooks mm -hmm. and um, tavern guides and like that kind of thing. Right. When did you when did you stop doing the supplements and like concentrate more on your world building? Well, we're still do we still do supplements here and there, but. The um, yeah, the focus now is mostly on the monster, especially this year, is on the monster series and finishing our world of mirror. Um, what happened again was a different stages, and also just very fortunate um, because after not long after publishing World of Mirror on Drive Through, the DMs Guild was created, and so I realized, oh, I have all of this great you know, all these great resources for dungeon masters, encounter tables and um, lists of like mounts and all these 
all these resources and things that I have in the world of Mir, which I can add to as well, these would be really useful for Dungeon Master, save a lot of time of coming up NPC books. Like we have tons of NPC books. Um, and I use all these books at my table to save me time. You know, we have a treasure book, which the DMG doesn't organize the treasure really well for you. You have to look through multiple tables, just like back in the day. So we have a book that organizes it all called uh, Treasured Finds. And we have tons of NPC books if you need characters or if you need pre-made characters. So all that was very fortunate. Um, and then I think after about two, yeah, two years of publishing on the DMs Guild and drive-through with the world of Mir, that's when I saw Travis Hansen's art and went, wow. Um, and he, he doesn't have just one style. People think sometimes he just does his life of the party cartoon style, but he actually has a few variations. So I could see that a variation of the, that art would be a really interesting new look for D&D. There hasn't been a lot of comic art for D&D. And I liked his balance of more heroic, more fun, humor, a little bit of edgy, a little bit of dark. And then when we met each other online, we we just got on like, you know, a house on fire. Like we're the, we're basically the same age. We both are we both are staying at home looking after our kids. Um, we want the same kind of creations out in the world. We we want the hero, we want the heroic adventure. We want to, you know, that's what we want to highlight. So yeah, a lot of a lot of synchronicity. Cool. Well, I'm gonna launch here uh, my screen so that we can all take a look at it. it was Monsters of Feyland your first? That's the first book in the Monsters series, yes. Yeah. And as you can see, Travis's art here on the the cover of it. And like you said, it's got the, a bit of a, a comic style to it, but mm -hmm. it does, as you said, it kind of fits nicely into D&D um, &D, though. I like, I was quite taken with it myself. Like when I first saw it, I went, I have to get it. And also too, I'll tell you a little bit about, as I was getting back into learning about design myself and I went that this was a print on demand product through drive through RPG. So these two books i actually purposely went okay i really like the books mm -hmm. i want to see what it's like in soft cover and i want to see what it's like in hardcover so i ended right. up <laughs> you nice. were my uh my first uh, tester i, I went nice. okay i want to see how they do it so that was like inspirational for me so thank you for that you're welcome um so the the names themselves um i mean some of them are standard D D fair but a lot of them i really like the creativity that you kind of bring into a lot of uh, the the names and combinations that you design, and how fun is that? Like, what is that? I would guess probably one of the most uh, fun parts of your games and your yeah. designs. Yeah, definitely. For me, one of the yeah the most fun parts of writing is playing with words. I like using um, sometimes words from other languages. If you, I I speak French too, so if you see, there's quite a bit of there's quite a bit of French um, combinations of words at times. 
Um, there is actually, there's a few, there's a few actually creatures from South Africa, which I've, there's one in every book so far, every monster book. Um, so I've used the name straight, straight from South Africa. Um, like in the Phelan book, there's the Protea, which is a, which is the national flower actually back in South Africa. So I made it a giant like man eating plant. Uh, in the underworld book, there's the boom slung, which is a big snake there. And in the city book, there is the jawler, which is sort of a joke actually, because a jawler is kind of a sort of a teen rebel sort of with attitude. So I sort of, I made, <laughs> made my version of that. And then the wilderness book, oh, of course, in the new book, I have a weird meerkat. Um, yeah, and then also every book, for some reason, there's been a David Bowie creature. That's just sort of happened. So yeah, there's a lot of musical influences too. That's cool. And I think I noticed there's a, a guitar in your background of your, uh, your video. So are you a yeah. musician? Well, learn, learning, learning to play guitar. I've done a few different instruments, but I definitely, music is definitely a huge inspiration. Yeah. I really liked the doubt trout. I don't know why, but that's kind of when I was flipping through the books, uh, that was the one that I went, that's kind of just like fun. And that probably speaks to your lightheartedness with the books and, uh, and do you have like a sense of your audience of who's been buying your books, like the age category and the demographics? Yeah, I mean, it's it's mostly the general D&D audience, which is in, in general younger people. So, you know, um, the core, I think, of D&D still as a younger group, probably 20 to 40 years old. However, uh, because I, it's funny, people have had a hard time kind of classifying us because we're not really a new, the new kind of new school. We're not, we're not grumpy grognard, sort of extreme old school. I think we're sort of a, we're sort of both, but we definitely have a lot of old school influences. Um, the, the interesting thing too about, was the doubt trout was a lot of learning. There were about half a dozen creatures in that book that I thought, oh, they're a bit over the top. And I don't know if I really want to use this. And then something inside of me said, no, just do it. Just do it. And all of those creatures, including one we're looking at here, the frog witch, all of those creatures I was wondering about were all the favorites. So I learned, you know, to, you know, when I have a really unique idea and I feel like I'm really going for it. Just do it. Do not hold back and do not try to be too safe. Just go for it. So that's where the doubt trout is from. Um, yeah, the, and the Goblin King here, another example. You know, that's another one. I thought, wouldn't it be hilarious if there was a goblin who somehow had learned about the labyrinth movie, just, you know, I know there, <laughs> there's a lot of suspension of disbelief there, but say there was a goblin who dressed up like Bowie in the Labyrinth movie, who was the Goblin King. I just thought, I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, and I, 
to, to be honest with you, some of them too, I have often gone like, how come nobody's thought of this before? <laughs> it's like, you know, when there's like such a, a clever idea right. and then you look at it and you go like, why haven't people done this before? So you've, uh, and maybe going back to my, one of my original comments was like, you've managed to take something that I thought was tired and maybe worn out and you've right. taken a new spin on it. And I, I think it's pretty amazing that you've been able to do that. Thanks. Yeah, I think again, you know, we go for, you know, we make sure that we connect to those archetypes. And here's another example, the Hatter. But then we, you know, we want to do something different. Um, and even mechanically, you know, we're even in the new book, and that's going to be coming out soon. You know, there's, we take more and more chances mechanically, we try to come up with some new, new ideas. And here's an example with the Hatter where his actions, his attacks are all throwing his hats, throwing magical hats um, with really unusual um, effects. And the Headless Horseman and... Mm -hmm. So what's what's your process for, okay, you come up with an idea and then how, do, how does it get to Travis and how many iterations in time does that take? Sure. So... First, um, when I'm designing the, the overall book, Travis and I have a talk about, we talk about the whole, you know, what's the whole theme of the book? What is the story? And they're usually, like every book really has an overall story and they become more and more campaign books, especially the city book and the new wilderness book because that's what customers have asked for is they want more of a campaign book, not just a monster book. So Travis and I discussed the whole overall concept and we, it's a negotiation where I usually bring him back from being too dark <laughs> <laughs> and he, he kind of helps me, my satire not hit people over the head so I pull back on my satire a bit or my overt, uh, my overt satire at times. And we try to find a balance there. And then, you know, overall, overall the design is still, is still mine, but I definitely want his input. I respect his input and I want him to be a partner. And so once I have that, then I start creating the creatures, which they happen a, a bunch of different ways. Sometimes it's a name. Sometimes it's building off another creature. Sometimes it's a myth. Like in the New Wilderness book, I got a whole a lot of the creatures from, well, not a lot. I'd say maybe half a dozen creatures or so from um, mythology in the United Kingdom. So sometimes our books, from, our creatures are from myth. And, one, and then I write the book. Once that's all done, I give it to layout. And this is our process only since the city book. The first two books were the Feyland book and the uh, Underworld book. It wasn't so smooth and it wasn't as organized, but now I, I write everything, I give it to layout and then it goes to Travis. So he knows exactly what space he's dealing with. He has the stat block and the bio to look at for the 
for the um, illustration. And then I send him an art list of descriptions of the creatures. And um, he usually does a sketch, sends it to me. If I like the sketch, we go to ink stage. And then that goes to color. And he's drawn about, he's drawn over 400 creatures for me now, 400. And I've, I've asked him to redo it, the sketch part, maybe twice. And I've asked for tweaks, maybe a dozen times at the most. Usually we are right on, and when, when there's creatures where I've given him tons of room to create, like I've given him a very simple description, which doesn't happen that much. But when I give him tons and tons of room where he's, you know, he's designing like, as far as the image, 80%, 90% of it, I love it like 98% of the time. <laughs> and that's the way that I feel about working with creative people, including the layout person, including um, Travis, the artist and other artists we've worked with, is that I'm an artist. I don't want someone telling me too much about how to create. And I would, if I was them, I wouldn't want that either. So I, I really, for the most part, let the other artists I work with do their thing. And I'm kind of the project man, I'm the pro, not kind of, I am the project manager and I will tweak things. And here we're looking at uh, Monsters of the Underworld. Was that your second one? Yes, yes. And that okay. that's really inspired by the D1 to 3 series from Gygax in the, in the 80s, the Underworld the um, underworld series that really focused on the drow. So that that book, that's really, and there's a drow city. So that that's where that comes from. It's really mostly... Yeah, mostly Gygax's work in the 80s and Tolkien. Let me just get to the, the heart of it here, some of the good monsters. Well, I went too far. I wanted to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so there was the crystal dragon. Travis and I both love to use the setting and all the elements of the terrain. Yeah. And here's our hero. So. This is sort of more the beginnings of when we started to create more a campaign book than just a monster book. So we came up with this uh, monster hunter who's sort of a Jedi-like character, but a, kind of a monk as well. Um, well, I guess Jedi are kind of monks. Um, and this was before, this is before The Witcher even. I didn't even know, I didn't know about The Witcher when we were designing this monster hunter. So. That just shows you how, again, archetypes are real and they do not change. And people can create work with archetypes in completely different parts of the world at the same time. So. And the crystal dragon. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I have a, there's a good story right here, actually. Originally, my first monster was going to be an angel. Mm -hmm. for the book. I thought it would be a neat idea if um, there was an angel in the Underdark fighting evil. Again, I like to have some heroes in these books. And then I realized that the first monster alphabetically, 
because we were going A to Z at that point, was going to be an angel. And I knew there's no way we could start an underworld book of monsters with the first thing being an angel. So there's there are changes we make like that. That was a last minute change. And when you um, come up with the monsters, like how many end up making the cut to be in the book and how many get left off for like maybe a future edition? Um, I'd say about 70% 70, 70 of the original list goes into the book. And then a number of those have gone into later books as well. Yeah. Yeah, there's no problem with amount of monsters. <laughs> <laughs> and um, with the layout part of it too, like, mm. I mean, that's kind of an interesting aspect that you actually uh, do the layout first and then have uh, Travis fit into the, uh, the, the spot. Do you ever change things up on after that where Travis does something that it doesn't quite fit in the design and then you kind of um, change the layout? afterwards um rarely um that started we started doing that in the city book when i brought i brought a new layout person in um his name is gordon McAlpin. he's also a writer designer um super talented creative guy and he he will do that at times but um yeah for the most part once we set the layout we've set the spaces but we have had a few changes there are some very creative things that Gordon and Travis have done too. I love in the um, in the city book, there was a, a, a very small horizontal space at the top of one of the pages in the layout, but the character happened to be a lazy spellcaster. So Travis decided, hey, I could just have him lying down, <laughs> which worked perfectly. <laughs> So, and now we're looking at the city book here. Yeah. Do you recall which, uh, off the top of my head, I don't know which one that would be. Do you recall? Which, which monster? The, the lay, the, which was laying down. Oh yeah. That was Lothar the lethargic. He's in the back in the, uh, sewer district. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see if we can get to him. But, uh, you know, it's really like solid product. And it seems like every version you get just a little bit more polished with it and a little bit more into your groove. But how, how has it been as far as like the sales go? And we don't need the details of how many or anything like that. Right. But where, where do you find like between Kickstarter and drive through RPG, like where, where do you find your audience gravitating towards? Well, the Kickstarters are definitely a big part of the year. So far, we've done one Kickstarter usually a year, and we've done the last four have been the Monster Series. So a lot of our years focused around that event, the Kickstarter. And our next one is likely in May for the fifth book. And then drive-through is our main platform, although we do sell our PDFs on our own site now as well. But uh, drive-through with the print-on-demand option 
and they do a very good job. I've bought other books, older, I've kind of put together my old first edition collection again, um, getting print on demand books from them as well. And they're great to work with. And then we use a printing company during the Kickstarter who is also amazing um, to work with. So yeah, mostly people find our products on DriveThruRPG, sometimes our website, and then the Kickstarter event is a big, big part of the year. And how much effort do you put into uh, like the pre-kickstarting um, <laughs> portion of it, just driving people to uh, follow it so they're notified? Like what kind of tools and techniques do you use to get people interested in it to begin with? Right, well, that's a good question because that's changed so much. So the first book, we really just said, <laughs> here's the cover, uh, it's on Kickstarter. And then we notified all, we, you know, we had it on social media. Luckily, I mean, and that is still our most popular book by far. Luckily, you know, that was a, that was a success. And when I got, when I first held the hardcover Phelan book in my hands, I suddenly knew what I'd been doing for three years, like where I was going. That's where I was going um, to make something like that. So now it's much more organized now. Now we, we send out a link to people that the Kickstarter is gonna launch in about a month and people can sign up, which is much easier. You get a quick notification that the Kickstarter is live. We, um, we get our Kickstarter reviewed by a number of people who are in the industry. We again, get it all over social media. We have a video made and the videos have got better and better over time, I believe. And now we have a, a YouTube channel where we can promote the books. We do book reviews there and we can do promo for the Kickstarter. And um, yeah, it's a more, more organized. We have more gra like more graphics that are being specifically made for the promotion part of the Kickstarter. Again, most of that promotion in terms of the design is now handled by Gordon, who does the layout for the books as well. And he does the videos. So it is much more organized and much more methodical than, than when we started doing that series. If, if you had to kind of guess, uh, I know I've heard this from a, a number of other creators that mm -hmm. in their Kickstarter, there's that spike, you know, of three or four days um, right. at the beginning. Right. And then there's like the lull and yeah. then people have that the kind of that last little push at the end of they get reminded, oh, you followed this Kickstarter, but you haven't funded it. And right. how have you been able to kind of maintain that so you don't get that big hump at the beginning? And how do you smooth out, out the middle part? Right, right. Good question again. Well, one way is to not reveal everything in the Kickstarter in the initial flurry in the beginning of the first week or so. So what we do is we, we have art for the whole the whole period for the whole promotion period. And we reveal that slowly through the promotion period. We also, as I said, in each book, there's really a story, especially starting with the Underworld book. 
So we, we start to tell that story during the process of the Kickstarter so that people can follow along. And on one level, that story is an exploration of that world, that campaign setting. And then we can reveal the creatures that are living there. So it's to make the Kickstarter you know, a narrative and a journey. And, and again, I'm interested in the heroic journey. So we have a hero who's going through that, through that journey. And the, um, the people who are following along and our backers, because you don't just have to think about the new backers. You have to give something to your backers who've already joined on. And the people who've helped us the whole way through our six years. So we want to give them a story. We want to reveal new art. I mean, the main reason we're doing it is that it's practical. These products are practical for the game. They're useful, but also that they're inspiring. And, uh, and not just for the game. I used to think that it was just for the games, but it's not at all. And so all of those things we can keep doing during the promotion period. Sometimes we've had events in that middle portion. We've had monster battles, which are on our YouTube um, channel. And yeah, there are a number of ways to keep, to keep that interest. Um, hopefully you have a few reviews of your Kickstarter and you can reveal those in that middle portion of the Kickstarter um, to get yourself uh, interviewed on one of the great YouTube shows like Daisuke Games, um, Daiku Games. So um, there, yeah, there's a number of ways of making sure you're, you've got to balance Kickstarter as much as possible. But part of it is just the bell curve. Part of it is just, you know, the way that your dice roll, you know. You know, most of the time you're going to roll your D20, it's going to roll in the middle. So in the Kickstarter world, most of the action is at the beginning and the end. Um, it helps, you know, obviously once your Kickstarter is for sure going to fund, then you have a lot more people join in. So everybody, of, of course, wants that to be earlier on to help with momentum. However, I think the first, our first four Kickstarters maybe, we just funded in the last few days. The first four successful ones we had. We only we only got there the last few days. And with that said, like, mm. uh, do you ever think, boy, if that had not got there in the final few days, <laughs> where would I be in my game design career? <laughs> well, as I said, the first Kickstarter we did for the World of Mirror didn't work. I think we tried to raise $4,000. We raised maybe a thousand, which in, in Kickstarter, the Kickstarter world means you don't get anything. <laughs> so um, we, I could have, yeah, I could have been very, I was disappointed, but I just said, you know, I'm going to figure out a way I'm going to get this published. And we did. So yeah, I'm not sure. I don't really, I'm not the kind of person who looks back. Um, and if there are bumps in the road, you know, I have the attitude of, you know, I'm going to try to figure out a way to do it. So, yeah, I mean, along the way, like my, um, my wife's good friend is an editor uh, back east in, um, in Canada. 
And she came on board for a while at the beginning to help me with layout. So there's been a lot of, uh, there were some people who did some things for free for me early on, which now that would not happen. Um, so you have to just kind of roll with the punches. And um, yeah, like I said, that initial Kickstarter, we just, we figured out we have to do this better next time. And I think I mentioned to you before in like, you know, leading up to our interview today, that the thing that really strikes me is you really have the vibe of an indie game, like not mm -hmm. even Dungeons and Dragons, it's but like the vibe mm -hmm. of an indie game, but obviously it's tied to, you know, the, the Dungeons and Dragons and the 5e. Right. Do you ever do you ever think of like uh you know there's rumors or speculation that they're gonna do a 6e or a 5.5 right and everything from like they're gonna lock out people from designing for those right, right. things and uh, do you ever uh worry about hitching your horse to something or is it obviously it's been a benefit thus far yeah again i would just kind of roll with it i mean like you say our creatures and our books, you could really use with a lot of different games. I mean, you could very easily use it with Pathfinder. You could use it with other editions in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I know people who bought the book just for the art. I know people who, who use the book to homeschool their kids. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of ways you could use our products. And initially when I started Kaywood Publishing, I wasn't ever thinking, oh, I'm just gonna write RPG stuff. RPG resources. I was never thought that. I thought, you know, I would probably, I'd like to write children's books, um, maybe like to write an RPG myself in terms of a system. So Travis and I have lots of other ideas if um, the license is um, ended for that. It sounds like 5.5 is going to be backwards compatible from everything I've heard. So so far, yeah, there's nothing, uh, you know, no indication for us to change. We have, an, we have at least two more of these monster series books planned out, one kickstarting in um, May and one probably next year. And then the Mirror book, hopefully kickstart that this fall. And then we'll see. Um, it's again, like I know there's been a change recently with stat blocks for monsters. I'm not interested in changing. I don't think it really changes too much. I think in the game, in games in general, the gaming community, there's a lot of overthinking things. Um, like the 5e rules are so smooth, <laughs> so efficient. The original ones, I don't know why you would want to change too much. And I like I know young kids who can figure them out. <laughs> so I don't understand when people say there's too much math or the bonus action is clumsy. I don't think it's too difficult. Um, and yeah, right now we're not going to change anything and um, you know, but that doesn't mean we don't. Any temptation to do like a Greyhawk box set for uh, the world of Mirror? <laughs> Oh, I would love. I would love to do that. We'll have to look at the costs <laughs> for a box. Um, the most likely thing is a book that that I'm working on now that has all nine continents, and then 
And we have a world map, we have continent maps, the rest of the continent maps are gonna be done. And then what I would probably have is um, a print on demand version for, for appendixes for the book, appendices. So, you know, for example, we include all of the inns and taverns in each continent in the book right now. So the Mir, World of Mir book, that continent has every single tavern and inn in it. <laughs> And the Nairn continent book has every single <laughs> tavern and inn. So in the big book, we're not going to do that. That would be a supplement. And we'd make a supplement probably for NPCs. So that's what it looks like for the fall. And I have probably 70% probably of that is written. And, and I guess, you know, kind of closing up our interview today. Yeah. When you think about uh, your your time with the red box and starting out and then your long gap. Right. And then now your obvious success and you're doing it as a full-time creator. Mm -hmm. Do you ever go, this is what I was meant to do all those years ago <laughs> and fate has finally come to, to play out. Yeah. yeah. It sure looks like that by accident. Um, I mean, I remember, and I, again, I forgot about the game. I'd forgot about, my involvement in the game about how I used to write modules. I remember the first one I wrote, I drew a picture of a beholder in a cavern. I think it was the whole idea of that adventure was the, the home of a beholder. So, and how much time I spent at that time writing and working on those games. And then, like I said, teaching using fantasy genre. And I would create these really intricate stories with puppets from the class for my students with mysteries. And then when I, I worked in the hotel business for quite a while and the way I would tell stories, including right now, it's, it's really never changed. If I look back now, it's really just telling stories. And, you know, the first love was fantasy, was that kind of world of wizards and dragons and yeah, so it does look, you know, it all fits together now, but it's been <laughs> quite a winding road. Well, uh, uh, once again, I just, I really like your products. Um, I think they really are a unique um, product within the broader spectrum of uh, Dungeons and Dragons and 5e. And I think your team have done an incredible job of bringing them out and uh, I can't wait to see your uh, Kickstarter in May, the, the fifth monster book. And right. uh, look, and I'll put all of the, the details in the show notes as far as where we can find you on social media and your website and, and Kickstarter. So, uh, Andrew, thanks for joining me today. Really appreciate it. And uh, all the best to you in the future. Thanks, Larry. It was fun.